This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Friday, February 15th, 2019. I'm Caleb Brown. Many critics of free trade mark the moment the U.S. gave China permanent normal trade relations status as the moment when China's relative rise truly began. Scott Linscombe is a trade attorney and adjunct scholar at the Cato Institute. We discussed China's rise and how the U.S. has failed to adjust. If you watch the the anger uh, surrounding the fact that China seems to be getting the better of the United States, or at least that's how it's presented to the public. Given the fact that you know, even our own trade people, yourself included, would say, yeah, it's true. There are substantial problems with the way that the US and China right. engage in on the trade front. So uh, to the extent that that is true, and the broader China's getting the better of us is uh, at l- very least way overstated, you know, draw that line. Yeah. So there is a a huge difference between rightfully, I think, criticizing Chinese trade and economic behavior. And I think that there is um, a lot of academic support for the idea that Chinese imports in particularly after between about 2000 to 2010 caused a pretty significant disruption for certain manufacturing industries and communities in the United States, what they call the China shock. That's all I think something that that I or other trade advocates would um, completely acknowledge. Uh, the, The difference though is First, uh, drawing conclusions um, with respect to whether that means that we are winning or losing at trade. Really, if you look at, again, those same analyses I just mentioned, they actually still show that the United States as a whole benefits from Chinese imports and from global competition and from the rest of that stuff, even considering those those disruptions I mentioned. Um, that the U.S. economy benefits from the type of economic dynamism that's injected when you have foreign competition. And that there are a, a lot of unseen benefits to that those transactions. The second wrong conclusion is what to do about it, right? So the solution here so often these days is tariffs. Right? We're going we're gonna to slap tariffs on Chinese goods, and that is somehow going to magically resuscitate the Rust Belt um, or somehow going to magically resolve all of the Chinese trade practices. Now, that you know, is really just belied by the evidence, particularly on the first point. Um, tariffs just aren't going to resuscitate manufacturing for all the reasons that you and I have talked about before. You know, The fact that American companies are globalized, they rely on imports and exports, all that kind of good stuff. And for all those dynamic reasons I just mentioned. Um, but beyond that, the fact that you know most manufacturing jobs are disappearing anyway over the longer term due to technology and uh, other consumer preferences, you know, things like we, we just now click on Netflix instead of getting a VCR tape or whatever. And so the other, though, issue is that typically – Foreign governments don't respond very well to the United States unilateral pressure. Now, the Trump administration appears to be having some marginal successes so far um, in terms of pressuring the Chinese, but we really don't we don't know what's there. We don't know what's coming of it. Um, what we can say quite confidently is that historically, uh, that type of activity does not typically lead to really good results in terms of changing foreign trade practices. And oh, by the way, it tends to lead to a ton of unintended consequences, um, you know, whether it be emboldening other competition, other foreign nations, or actually 
entrenching certain anti-American sentiment in China, whatever it is. So you actually end up doing more harm than, than good sometimes in these situations. What is the most salient point, or I should say, what is the most uh, effective point that people who would like to impose tariffs make? Well, I think the, the most effective point is that there is bad behavior going on um, in terms of Chinese trade policies. You know, I don't think that um, you'd find anyone who says that the Chinese government or Chinese trade and economic policies are uniformly excellent, right? That whether it is um, intellectual property issues or industrial policy subsidy issues um, or market access issues. Um, there is legitimacy in a lot of the criticisms, not all, but in a lot of the criticisms. And so when, when individuals, when people who champion tariffs say, well, that's, that's the reason, look, you have to nod and say, a lot of those things are bad. The, the problem, of course, is that the tariffs don't solve those policy issues. And they do a ton of collateral damage along the way. Um, not just economic damage, but then you know there's political dysfunction issues, good government issues, whether it be from USTR all of a sudden having to decide who gets an exclusion from the tariff and who doesn't. Um, you know, massive lobbying expenditures go into that kind of stuff. Uh, none of that is is uh, what good government folks would would hope to see. And so you not only have the economic costs on import consumers and on individual American families, um, but also on the kind of political process. You argue that. U.S. policymakers when uh, China received permanent normal trading relations uh, effectively did not have a choice. Yeah. So there's a lot of revisionist history when it comes to what happened in the late 90s and early 2000s with respect to the United States government granting China what we call permanent normal trade relations, which because was- Because a lot of people point to that as a moment in time that changed everything. Exactly. Exactly. They flipped a switch and all of a sudden China became an economic powerhouse and uh, the, the Rust Belt was destroyed, right? So the, the fact is that if you actually look at the contemporaneous- policy decision. And what I mean by that is that it's very easy to look at the activities of the Chinese government of the last, say, five, 10 years and say, oh my gosh, PNTR was such a mistake. But you can't judge a decision made 20 years ago on something that happened two years ago. Um, nobody uh, has a crystal ball. So if you go back and you look at the information at the time, well, here's what we saw. We saw that the Chinese were engaging in a lot of serious economic reforms. Those reforms actually, studies show, contributed significantly to the competitiveness of Chinese exports. Um, so it was not only the lowering of, of global trade barriers when China joined the World Trade Organization, but it was also all of these internal reforms that China made, including lowering its own import tariffs, by the way. So th that was the first issue. The, the second issue is that the PNTR debate was really about whether the United States would get to enjoy the benefits of China's WTO membership. So China, by the time the PNTR debate was really cranking up in 2000. And what I want to be clarify here, uh, PNTR refers to permanent, permanent normal, normal trade, trade relations. relations. Right. And so when the, when the PNTR debate was really cranking up in 2000, China's accession to the WTO was a done deal. All of the steps that needed to be taken had been taken. And at this point, really all that was left was for governments to uh, grant China permanent uh, normal trade relations, or also called Most Favored Nation Treatment, or MFN. If the United States had not granted China permanent MFN, 
or permanent NTR, the United States would not have gotten to enjoy the benefits of China's WTO accession, meaning uh, lower barriers to U.S. goods and services in the Chinese market. So China could have treated us like a non-WTO member, like we treat Iran, for example. The United States also would not have been able to use the dispute settlement system when it came to um, challenging Chinese trade practice, which has actually been quite successful, though not used enough, but it still has been quite successful. And meanwhile, all of America's competitors or all of American companies' competitors, American farmers' competitors in places like Europe and Japan and elsewhere would enjoy all of those benefits. So when you look at the fact that the Chinese government at the time was undertaking massive reforms and that China was joining the WTO, whether we liked it or not, the grant of permanent normal trade relations was, was pretty much a no-brainer. Um, I'd add that, that the United States, by the late 1990s, the granting of annual normal trade relations, which is what we were doing, um, was pretty much a done deal. In fact, in 99, I believe it didn't even get a vote in the Senate. Um, so this annual process was, was pretty pro forma. And so that was the other issue, that, that it wasn't like um, tariffs were really, really high on Chinese goods. Um, they were already relatively low because we were granting them annual NTR. Now, granting them permanent status did very likely um, encourage additional exports and investment because there was more certainty in the process. But it was, it's a myth to think that somebody just flipped a switch and all of a sudden Chinese imports flooded into the country. So what are the adjustments that ought to be made? Obviously, uh, for people who understand the economics of trade, uh, making use of the WTO processes more vigorously might be a solution. Simon Lester says, as, as you noted, uh, they've been very successful. The yeah. US has been very successful at challenging various issues uh, with China. But it, what are the adjustments that the US ought to make? Well, so, you know, I'll start with the WTO disputes, like you mentioned. Um, it is something that there are tons of provisions of the WTO agreements on intellectual property, on industrial subsidies, on agricultural market access, you name it. Um, and there are what we call WTO plus commitments that China made as part of its accession that have just sat covered in dust, have never been used, have never been the focus of a WTO challenge. Even though if you look back at the 20 plus complaints against China, that the Chinese actually tend to comply relatively well, about as well as can be expected. Nobody's perfect. The United States doesn't comply with all the its adverse WTO decisions. Nobody does. But the Chinese tend to comply. Now, it takes a little while. It's boring. But the fact is that it is a relatively effective way to put multilateral pressure, meaning a lot of people against one, to force reforms um, or at least encourage them. So that's one area. Another area, though, is creating a, a new set of rules outside of the WTO <clears throat> where we think that's necessary. And there are things like, oh, you know, the Trans-Pacific Partnership, which was, of course, an economic agreement, but also very much considered to be a geopolitical tool where you were going to get this coalition of the willing together and including a lot of Asia Pacific countries whose largest trading partner was China, whether they liked it or not, due to kind of gravity model of trade, people close together tend to trade with each other. And so these, these countries, particularly Japan, Vietnam, Malaysia, Singapore, a few others, were looking for an alternative. And TPP was giving these countries an alternative in the Western hemisphere with the United States, Canada, Mexico, and a few others. But beyond that, it was creating a, a new set of rules on issues like subsidies and state-owned enterprises and a few other things 
that were probably not going to happen at the WTO because the WTO is 164 members. One of them is China. Hard to get that that through a consensus process. But what you could do is start with a group of a lot of countries representing about 35% of world GDP, and then try to multilateralize those rules through the TPP, and maybe try to get China to eventually join the TPP and, and agree to those rules, right? So you have this kind of pincer process of the TPP, uh, but then maybe also actually encouraging Chinese reforms there. Another potential area was a bilateral investment treaty with the Chinese that the Obama administration started, um, but has since been uh, scrapped. Or it sounds like you're describing several things that have been scrapped. Yeah, I am. Now, let's talk about things that that I don't think have been done, but that, or, or things that the Trump administration is already doing that I think are, are actually okay in this regard. Um, you know, when you talk about targeted sanctions and criminal actions, we have laws on the books that already do these, and they don't involve blanket tariffs on stuff you buy at Walmart. There's other areas. And then it's really critically important to think outside of trade policy. You know, we trade wonks. We complain about having to have all sorts of other expertise hats, whether it be labor markets or whatever. But the fact is that there are a lot of other levers that the United States can pull when it comes to improving the competitiveness of the American economy and American companies. Um, High-skilled immigration, of course, being one of those. And they're, they're all unilateral. Right. All unilateral. Um, and so there are, there are labor policies, immigration policies, tax policies things that can be done to really ramp up the uh, ability of American companies and individuals to compete in this global marketplace. Um, And yet, the Trump administration's record on this is, is rather spotty, really bad in some places, okay in some others, and then non-existent in the rest. Scott Lincecum is an adjunct scholar at the Cato Institute. Subscribe to the Cato Daily Podcast wherever you get your podcasts, and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast. 